Father, we come this morning and we bring before you all of our blessings, all of our thanksgivings um, for all the many gifts that you have given us. We come before you this morning uh, with humble spirits and with contrite hearts, uh, knowing that we are um, constantly surprised at our welcome in your presence, um, overwhelmed uh, by the gift of your Son, his life, death, and resurrection, and through the work of your Spirit in our lives. We pray, Father, that as we seek to follow you, which includes our, our stumbling, which includes our, our mistakes and our backsliding, that you would continue to chase us, that you would continue to um, pull us back in towards the gravity of your love for us and the work that you're doing um, in the world and in and through us. We pray this morning, Father, that as we open up the Scriptures, that you would speak to us, that the Spirit would be powerfully moving uh, in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds. And it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, it is good to be back, like I said. I do want to thank uh, Jake Milwee and Michelle uh, McKeska here for preaching while I was gone. They both did a great job, and it's on the podcast for you. Um, I was in Disney suffering for the Lord, uh, and so some of us have to do it. Uh, it was a unique experience being in Disney because it's a pretty diverse place. You've got tourists that come from all over the world. At one point, we were walking at a, at a park, and I turned to Lindsay, and I was like, I think this is the only place I've ever been where you can walk down a street and have six families walk by you on the other side and each of them be talking in a different language from like a different part of the world. Um, and it got me thinking about how diverse Christianity is. Uh, this is one of the things that I try to impress the most um, when I am uh, lecturing or at the university um, is that your experience of Christianity is a very small slice of what Christianity is in the world. And in fact, your experience, my experience, is not the average Christian experience. Like if you were to take all of the Christians in the world right now worshiping, they don't look and act and talk and sound and smell like we do. We're a minority. They are um, in the southern part of the world, Latin America. They are brown or black. They are um, very um, Pentecostal in their theology. They are um, speaking in tongues during service. They are familiar with angelic encounters and miracles and healings and things of that nature. Um, meanwhile, we're a little boring. It's okay. We're here and we're faithful. Christianity is this diverse thing. Um, and to get us kind of started on what I want to talk about this morning, I want to make two observations, kind of get us brainstorming. The first is this. Many, if not most, religious groups are remarkably similar socially and culturally, no matter where they occur. Many, if not most of them. So I'll give you an example. If you go to a mosque in Houston, and then you go to a mosque in another country, let's just say the Middle East, what you'll find there is it's pretty similar. The customs, the dress, the decorations, the architecture. I mean, it's pretty remarkably similar in terms of how much else is different around it. Um, you um, see this in different kinds of things, like a traditional Indian wedding, um, right? Whether that's in Sugarland, Texas, 
or where that's actually in India, right? There's this remarkable um, similarity between the two. And I want you to notice that this is not true of Christianity. Going to church here this morning at Sweetwater Christian Church is not remarkably similar, socially or culturally, to the thousands and thousands of different ways that Christians are getting together and worshiping and fellowshipping and reading the scriptures this morning. The second observation is that many, again, if not most religious groups, remain based geographically, for the most part, where they originated. Um, So we can take Islam, for example. Islam still is very dominant and centered in the Middle East and in, in Africa. Or, or Hinduism, right? This is still very much an a India-centric religion. Again, notice this is not true of Christianity. There is no real geographical center to Christianity. We make trips to the Holy Land, for sure. Um, but if you just look at church history, to try to nail down a center of Christianity, which there can be over time, um, you'll find it just moves around. It starts in Jerusalem, then it goes to Antioch, then it goes to Alexandria, then Constantinople. And then for a while, maybe it was in North America. After it was in Europe for a little bit, now it's probably Latin America, if you had to choose somewhere. It moves around. It's this really diverse thing. And, and I think the reason for the diversity in Christian faithfulness, in Christian worship, both socially, culturally, geographically, has a lot to do with the Apostle Paul who wrote a lot of our New Testament and wrote a book called Galatians in which he lays out a lot of these big, huge theological claims about God and about what God desires in the world that I think leads to this type of freedom, this type of diversity and the unity that we have in spite of that diversity. This morning, I want to start a sermon series on the book of Galatians. I don't want to. I'm going to. There's really no option for you. Um, Galatians, so if you have a, a Bible, open with me to the book of Galatians. Um, we will spend the next couple weeks, months, years uh, going through Galatians. Um, I like to preach through books of the Bible for lots of reasons. I'm not a very creative person, and so these topical series just drain me a little bit. I made up all of that neuroscience stuff just to kind of get a few weeks in the books. Um, so we're back in Galatians. Galatians is an amazing book. Galatians is the center of a lot of the big theological um, ideas and beliefs that shape how I think about God and how I think about the world. Um, It's been a big shaper and mover in more academic theological circles and the the different um, themes and streams that, that scholars pursue. And Galatians, I think we'll find, is a very relevant book to the situation we're in now. Imagine us now as American Christians with all the things that that means and all the things around us locally, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our nation, in our world. And then think how relevant Galatians might be. Because Galatians is a book about Christians struggling to be faithful to the gospel under national, ethnic, social, cultural pressure to perhaps dilute the gospel, to perhaps get it wrong. Galatians is about harmful boundaries and divisions that are built up between people, whether that's men or women, whether that's people from different countries, whether that's people from different socioeconomic classes, whether that's people with different political backgrounds. 
Galatians is, is all about this. Galatians is about um, people who either out of ignorance or because they have other agendas try to hijack Christianity and make it about or at the service of something else. I think all of these things are very relevant for us right now, and we'll find them all at the heart of Galatians. Um, I don't want to do too much this morning. Um, sometimes the tendency when I'm gone for a couple of weeks is to come back and preach for a couple of hours and just get everything out that I had thought of. Um, instead, we're going to start slow. I just kind of want to intro us to the book of Galatians. So we're going to read the first two verses. Um, we're going to talk about the background of the book. Look real quickly at kind of the big theme of Galatians. Um, and then we'll be prepared for our series going forward. So verses 1 through 2, try to keep your attention with me. It's long. Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, this is the only time actually in Galatians that the resurrection is mentioned. And we'll come back to that later, but it's an interesting note there. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, just this introduction, we get two big characters, okay? The Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, and then these churches in Galatia who are receiving this letter. And this sets the scene for what is perhaps the most dramatic relationship in the New Testament between the Apostle Paul and these churches in um, the Galatian area that he is writing to. If you're not familiar, Paul is a former prosecutor of Christians. He ran around arresting them, trying them. Um, trying to um, subvert the movement started by Jesus and his apostles. He has this life-changing experience where Jesus reveals himself to him, and Paul finds his whole life reoriented around this very single, focused truth about what God has done in Christ and through the Spirit for both himself and for the people around him and indeed for the entire world. And this is Paul's kind of singular focus now. And, and Paul's a missionary, and so he goes out on these missionary journeys. And, and we debate whether this is the first one or second one, and the chronology is a little confusing. But on one of these early missionary journeys, Paul ends up getting sick. And he needs to take a break. And there's this Roman province called Galatia. And there's a group of people in there who take him in. And he stays there while he gets better. We think there are problems with his eyes. In Galatians 4, he'll mention this. He'll mention the love he has for the Galatians. The Galatians actually aren't known, if you take the Roman Empire's word for it, for being that great of people. Um, they thought they were the barbarians par excellence. Um, most uh, empires or big superpowers sometimes look down on other countries or other people from other countries. The Galatians, the people who had ended up in that Roman, pro- uh, Roman province, were those type of people for the Roman Empire. Um, They were the others. They were the ones who weren't civilized, who didn't follow the law. And yet this group of people show this hospitality to the Apostle Paul. He spends time with them, and some churches are started. He preaches the gospel. He tells them what God has done in Christ through the Spirit. And these communities are started. So Paul has this kind of fatherly affection for the churches in Galatia. It's Father's Day, and so as we celebrate Father's um, on, on this Sunday, um, we see Paul um, writing a letter to some churches that he has this very deep affection for. Notice, though, in this beginning, Paul does not give thanks for the Galatians. If you go all the way through the beginning, kept reading till verse 6, you'd notice this is true as well. There's no 
at any point does Paul say, I give thanks in my prayers for you. I thank God for you and for your faith. If you read all of Paul's letters, this is the only letter he writes that he does not give thanks for a group of people. This is also how you know Paul really cared about this church, because he is mad. This is the angriest letter you get in the New Testament. Um, In fact, I think this is the most explicitly aggressive letter preserved in any of the major religious scriptures, sacred texts. Paul is livid at this community and what he's heard about what's been going on since he was there. Um, It is slightly amusing to me um, because that kind of thing amuses me. Um, This Galatian area is what we call modern-day Turkey right now. He starts these churches. About a year after he starts them, he gets a message. And the message is things are not going well at these churches. All the things that you started, all the things that you were proud of, have started to crumble and fall apart. And for Paul, it's not just, as we'll see, a disappointment. It's actually a a threat to his very understanding of what God has done in Christ, to the very singular truth about what is the gospel. Um, So we know Paul has the deep affection. Um, One, because they cared for him like this. He he seemed to be very proud of this community. And two, because of how mad he is. You, You really only get mad about things that you care about, right? And you get really mad about the things that you really care about. And so I'll just list off a few of the things that Paul says here about the Galatians. I want you to know your English translations try to soften this down for you because they're not sure you can handle people having upset feelings. Um, Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says he's astonished about how quickly they deserted Jesus in the gospel. He's like, I can't even imagine how fast y'all did this. Y'all just threw Jesus aside. Y'all just threw the good news of the gospel aside in 7 and 8. He says, false teachers or even angels who preach a gospel other than the one I told you are cursed. Then the next verse says, let me repeat myself so I'm clear. They have a curse on them. And you, you've fallen into their their trap here. In chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, you foolish Galatians. He calls them morons. He goes, what are you, what's your IQ? What's your capacity here? What are, you, what are you doing here, you foolish Galatians? He asks them again in verse 1, who's bewitched you? He was like, did Harry Potter come and cast a spell over you? Like, how, how did this happen? What was the situation that this was able to come about in? Um, in verse 3, he asks them again rhetorically, are you this foolish? Are you really this gullible? Are you really this easily misled? In chapter 4, he tells them that he's pretty sure he's afraid now that he's done all this work in vain, that it's for nothing. Their communities are hopeless now. He's upset. Um, chapter 5, he says, they were doing well. And then he asks him, who hindered you from doing this? Who came and tripped you from this, this faithful obedience that I had for you? And then my favorite, And I apologize in advance. Paul said that's not me. In chapter 5, verse 12, he says that he wishes those who are causing problems in these churches, he wishes that they would castrate themselves, which is a real insult, right? That's next level. Can you imagine the Pope getting up on his, like, Vatican porch and making that statement about some group of people he, he disagrees with? Um, it's actually a little catchier than that. Um, I'll come back to the statement about the emasculation here. Um, the problem that was happening in Galatia, here's why he was so mad. 
after Paul starts these churches, some other teachers come in and start to sow seeds of doubt about his authority, about his intelligence, about his trustworthiness, and about the very truth about what he was teaching them. Um, These were Jewish Christians. Um, We think Galatians is probably the first letter that Paul writes, maybe late 40s, early 50s. Um, It might, in fact, be the very first New Testament document that's written when you take all the New Testament uh, documents and put them together. Um, We think that these Jewish Christians start this as a pattern, um, that it maybe starts at Galatia, but then they continue to do this. Paul goes and starts a church, and then they come up behind him. This is, is maybe his first time dealing with it, which is maybe why in the future he's a little less emotional and angry about it. He knows how to deal with it perhaps a little bit better. But these Jewish Christians come in. We call them Judaizers. Juda- Judaizers. I can't say that properly. Judaizers, right. Okay. Um, and they are not anti-Christian. Um, they believe that they're following Christ. Um, and what they are convinced of is that for Gentiles, for people who are not Jewish to faithfully follow Jesus, they must first become Jewish. They must convert into Judaism, much like you would have before Jesus had come. There were ways that a Gentile, someone who wasn't in Israel, could become an Israelite, involved adopting certain laws that were found in the Old Testament, the laws of the Torah, the Mosaic laws. There were some key ones that separated them out from the rest of the world that marked them as holy and set apart and clean and pure as God's people. The two biggest ones were food laws and circumcision. And indeed, these Jewish Christian teachers came in and said, you can't actually be a follower of Christ. You aren't actually following God's will in Christ unless you adopt these kosher laws and you stop eating with people who are eating the wrong things and unless you get circumcised. The two problems we have here in Galatia are food and foreskins. And while this might be uncomfortable for you, this is actually a big problem throughout the New Testament. Every time I teach the New Testament, in fact the Old Testament as well, students are surprised how big a part circumcision plays in the whole thing. It's just a big theme throughout. And maybe good or bad, depending on your sense of humor, um, the way circumcision works. I had a diagram. Uh, Jake Milby, our elder, told me to throw it away. <laughs> something gets cut off. And because something gets cut off, there's lots of possibilities to play on words and be punny about um, circumcision and being in or out of God's people. And so God himself will actually make these play on words sometimes. He'll say, if you're not circumcised, if you don't want to get cut off, I'll cut you off from my people. And this is probably what Paul's doing here when he says, why don't you just emasculate yourselves? He goes, y'all, y'all are this obsessed with circumcising people? Well, don't stop there, right? I mean, just cut it all off. Just get rid of it all. Paul, Paul's upset about these Jewish Christians that come in. They're, they've come in, they started to divide his communities. And now people are doubting Paul. Now people are separating out from those who are now following these Jewish Mosaic laws and people who are not. And for Paul, this is deeply troubling. This is deeply troubling. You might be able to imagine and empathize how he's feeling here. Imagine that you 
um, went to an area of the world where segregation was very much um, the norm. And, and you worked very hard over the course of months to build a school that was kind of groundbreaking in that culture. It was going to be a school that desegregated children. And you're going to have black children and white children learning in the same environments. And there was a lot of groundwork you had to do. There was a lot of convincing. There's a lot of vision you had to cast. There's a lot of community outreach you had to partake in. And then you have this pride, this joy. You see this positive movement in the world when the school comes about. Now imagine you leave with your leadership team and you go to make some more schools like this. And then about a year later, you get a report. And the board of the school you had built and left has now started to segregate the students. You can imagine the feeling. You're undoing all of these things that I've worked to do. And for Paul, this problem is not just a problem of tolerance and diversity. Um, So Paul works very hard to make people understand that the gospel is for everybody, Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles do not have to become Jews to be part of Christ's family, that it's opened up to, to everyone. But he doesn't do this just because he likes the warm feeling of everyone being included. He's not like a New York Times editor, okay, writing opinion pieces about tolerance and diversity. Now, much of our Western ideals of equality and tolerance and diversity come from the Apostle Paul and the early Christian movement, because before this, these ideas weren't celebrated, breaking down these boundaries and divisions, trying to make different people equal. But for Paul, this is not just about tolerance and diversity and inclusion. This is a gospel issue. This is a theological issue. This cuts right to the heart of what's true about what God has done in Christ and through the Spirit about what, what God desires on earth because of his work in Christ and through the Spirit. You see, Christ came to inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. If we imagine that Jesus came just to send us to heaven after we die, then we might indeed think it's kind of useless. It might be nice, but it's not necessary, right, for our communities to be transformed, for boundaries to be overtaken, for for Republicans to get along with Democrats, for Americans to get along with Iraqis, for men to get along with women, for all these different boundaries to be broken down, right? But if you understand Christ's work as coming to inaugurate a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to have God's will displayed here and now, then in fact these boundaries being broken down are actually central to the gospel being worked out in communities, and in individuals, and in cities. Jews and Gentiles eating with one another. The gospel of the kingdom is about these barriers breaking down. It's about good news for the poor and the oppressed. It's about restored fellowship with God and with others. If you look at Galatians 3, um, we'll pick up in verse 23. Paul says, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. That law he's talking about maybe should be capital L. It's the Torah, the Mosaic law, not just a general set of rules. We're no longer under that guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through kosher laws? Through circumcision? No, Paul says through faith. Through faith, you're all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For as many of you are baptized, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is a gospel theological issue for the Apostle Paul. For Paul, if you think that Gentiles need to become Jewish to follow Christ, you have fundamentally missed the point of the gospel, of what God has done in Christ and continues to do through the Spirit. For Paul, if you add anything to the sufficiency of Christ and the Spirit, you have not just made a poor mistake. You have actually started to unravel the very heart of the truth of the gospel. The Judaizers, um, they were concerned with the circumcision, with these food laws, um, but they weren't just law-centered people, right? They're, they weren't just theoretical in their concerns. They weren't just ethical in their concerns. They didn't just want people to obey the law. There was a national and racial basis for these concerns. The concerns were nationalistic. They were pragmatic. They weren't just saying obey the law. They were saying obey the law that makes us special from the Gentiles. Obey the laws that build up these boundaries between God's people and those who aren't God's people. And for Paul, this is a, a huge, a huge mistake. This is a form of, we might call it, cultural imperialism. Imperialism where you colonize, you take over another group of people or land. Culturally, you take your own culture and you impose it on other people. In the history of Christianity, we have unfortunately seen this sometimes. Um, when I went over to Kenya uh, years ago to teach at a seminary one summer, um, I went to some slum churches, and we had Kenya worship. And it lasted 12 hours, and it was dancing and singing. And, I mean, you would have thought um, that you were looking at, I mean, all the white people there, right, were like church ended 16 hours ago. What are we doing here? But there were also buildings in the city where you'd go and you'd have Kenyans in suits singing hymns looking just like a Baptist church that you'd find in Sugarland. I'm not dissing on the Baptists. Most missiologists have now learned this, that we shouldn't impose our culture on other people, right? American worship is not the worship that the world needs. The world needs worship. And so when we go to China, they need to worship like they worship in China. When we go to other places, they need to do this. In fact, actually now they're coming here because the tables have turned um, in terms of, of faithfulness. Um, you might think of it like this. The Judaizers weren't opponents of Christianity. Um, they just wanted to kind of add on Moses to Jesus. It was Jesus plus Moses. It'd be like if you went to Billy Graham crusade. And afterwards, you were told to be fully converted, you also need to now become an Episcopalian. 
right? I mean, you're taking some kind of cultural preference, perhaps, if you're an Episcopalian, and you're adding this on to kind of the centrality of what seems like um, the, the full message here. Um, this is what's happening with the, the Judaizers. And, and for Paul, it's a huge problem. This Jewish nationalism distorts the gospel of Jesus. In fact, for Paul, whatever practices detract from the sufficiency of Christ's work and the ministry of the Spirit, they must be opposed. For Paul, whatever practices build walls between people who believe in Jesus have to be torn down. And for Paul, whatever practices seek to supplement or add on to trust in Christ and dependence on the Spirit, they've got to be cleared away. We will, throughout the course of our sermon series, think through long and hard about what we might be tempted to do like the Judaizers. I don't think kosher laws and circumcision are really our, our problems, right? Um, we'll have to be a little more creative in what kind of systems we try to impose or add on. Um, but one I'd like to point out, the most obvious one, I think, is this cultural imperialism. Um, it wasn't just Jewish nationalism that taints the gospel. Nationalism in general has always tainted the gospel. The moment you add on any sort of dependence to a culture or a society or to a race or to a nation, you splinter, maybe obviously, maybe subtly, the truth of the gospel and it almost always historically falls apart in a dramatic and heartbreaking way. Nazi Germany is a great example of this. The Christianity of Germany at the time, missiologists were very proud. They thought Germany was the most Christian nation. It was the shining example of how you turn a nation into a Christian nation. It was that same nation, though, still Christians, who participated in and or were okay with the genocide of Jewish people. Why? It's very clear why. If you read the history, you stay up to date with these things, because their Christianity had gotten attached with nationalism. And what it meant for them to be a Christian was somehow, in big or small ways, tied in with what it meant to be a German. And when the German leaders started saying to protect Germany, we need to demonize this group of people, it was easy for them to go along with it. And then when the German leaders started to say, we need to start to get rid of this group of people, it was easy to go along with it. You don't see quite clearly the way we do in hindsight how these two things don't match up at all. You see this cultural imperialism all over the place. Um, uh, the most recent one that we can use is um, slavery in the United States. Um, if you read the literature, um, I've done work on this. Um, you had pastors, Christian pastors from pulpits arguing for slavery in America. In fact, the ser- I mean, it wasn't long ago, right? You can read the sermons. Um, the, the, the people who argued most vehemently for slavery were what we would call the more literal biblicists, the people who preached more Bible stuff. And you know what they said to people who said slavery is not something Jesus wants? You get to define what Jesus wants. You get to say what equality is. 
You, you get to say what you think Jesus wants. It's in the Bible. It's right here. There's commands in the Old Testament. It's okayed in the New Testament. It's at least not spoken against. This culture starts to infiltrate with Christianity in a way that, again, in hindsight, hopefully, all of us now can see is a horrific mistake. A horrific mistake. But when they start to mix together, things start to go south. Um, we've always, I think, got to be aware of this. Um, there's lots of things going on in our nation right now. My ears perked up this week. Um, when the United States Attorney General Jeff Sessions quoted Romans 13 uh, to defend uh, some controversial immigration policies that are happening. I do care about these immigration things. I have opinions on them, but don't care right now for that. I care a lot about Romans 13, though. I've done a lot of work on that, written the papers, presented them at the academic conferences. Um, And I can tell you two things. One, Romans 13 doesn't work that way. Romans 13 does not legitimize any government's laws or policies. And Romans 13 does not require anyone to obey laws or enforce laws. It requires you to submit to the government, which is called civil disobedience. In fact, if you look throughout history at the people who were able to stand up and make change, it were the people who said, I'm not doing that. At the same time, Martin Luther King has this great quote, right? He says, the person who disobeys civilly and accepts the consequences takes the law more seriously than anybody else. And so, um, you know, Sessions, I thought, originally was just trying to kind of defend the morality of it. And I was like, whether it's moral or not, that text doesn't do that for you. Uh, Then someone pointed out to me, maybe he was just trying to say, like, this is why I'm enforcing it. And I'm like, well, unfortunately... That also doesn't do that for you either. Um, because if it is immoral, if you do have problems with it, you're called to civilly disobey. Now, accept the consequences, which may be tougher for the attorney general than it would be for anybody else. Um, the text just doesn't quite, quite work that way. Here's the second thing I can tell you about Romans 13. This is maybe just free. Romans 13 is the favorite text to be used by government or national powers to justify at best morally ambiguous laws or policies and at worst inherently demonic evil laws or policies. If you were writing a playbook of history and you took the biggest atrocities committed since the first century, what you'll find in almost every case where there's a large Christian population is leaders stood up and said, Romans 13, God put the government in place. Obey the government. Some translation issues. You can find translations that say obey. And so my ears perked up. My blog site traffic spiked too because I've written some on, on Romans 13. This, 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 not as important, but <laughs> this cultural imperialism this adding really of anything to the centrality of Jesus starts to distract, starts to crumble, starts to break away. For Paul, this is a theological issue. This is striking at the heart of the gospel. Um, The gospel um, for Paul in Galatians is about what God has done in Christ 
and it affects the entire world. It affects these barriers. Um, you can look at it in kind of like three, three aspects. You can take almost any story and kind of look at it in different ways. I'll do Lord of the Rings as an example because I'm a pastor and we're Christians. And I think every five illustrations, we have to use at least one Lord of the Rings one. Um, you could watch Lord of the Rings or read the books and you could come away and say, this is a story about two hobbits. And I learned a lot about these hobbits. It's an interesting story. And I hope they make more hobbit stories. And you'd be right. I mean, if that was just your analysis of the story, right? It is a story about hobbits. Sam and Frodo. You could also, though, take a step back. And you could say, this is a story about the fate of entire cities. And you would be just as right. That's the person who said, this is the story about Sam. You could take a further step back. And you could say, this is a story about a battle between good and evil. This is a story about the fate of the entire Middle Earth. And you'd be equally right. And what we'll see in Galatians is this is how Paul sees the gospel weaving in and out of every issue important to human beings. The gospel is good news on a personal level. The gospel is for Chris Bowers, Marcus Roberts, Jen LaRune. And that's a true statement. The story of Jesus is true on that analysis, on that level. But you can step back. And you can say the story of Jesus is about Sweetwater Christian Church. And about the larger churches in Sugarland. It's about communities. It's about the relationships between individuals. And you'd certainly be right. And Paul focuses on this a lot in Galatians. And you could step back even further, and Paul does this again in this book. He says the story of Jesus Christ is the story about God breaking the very powers of evil that have enslaved the entire cosmos, defeating death itself. It's personal, it's communal, it's cosmic. And as we come to the table this morning, The table is a chance for us to enact these realities about the gospel. When we come to the table, we come as as individuals. We come as a singular person with all of our messes and complexities and failures and successes and doubts and beliefs. And we come and we receive the good news for us. That we're accepted and forgiven When we come to the table, we come as a community. We come as Americans and Canadians. We come as Democrats and Republicans. We come as, you fill in the blank, and we're one people at the table. And when we come to the table, we come as a people looking at the most drastic world-changing event that's ever happened to the entire creation. We come participating in this cosmic victory that Jesus has accomplished. And so as we come this morning, as we prepare to dig into um, this text, um, may we um, constantly be uh, on alert for ways that perhaps we add on to the gospel, for ways that perhaps we slowly and subtly 
start to mix up cultural ideas, personal preferences with the centrality of Jesus and his work, the sufficiency of the Spirit's leading in our lives for freedom and obedience and faithfulness. And may we come accepting the good news as individuals, as a community, and as a whole creation. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for all the gifts that you have given us. I pray that um, you would continue to um, show us that it's Jesus and Jesus alone um, who makes us who children of God, who, who brings our identity. Um, we pray that it's, we would realize more and more it's the Spirit and the Spirit alone that leads us into the life that you desire. We pray that the boundaries that we erect, the divisions um, that we encounter would constantly be broken down by the gospel, would be broken down at the table, at the altar, would be broken down in our prayers and in our fellowship and in our worship. We pray that our very lives and relationships would be a witness to the work that you have done in Christ. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray.